Well, I'll begin this sermon with an illustration, very simple illustration, if you will. I know many of us, when we were young, we played the game King of the Hill. There was some sort of hill or something where whoever was there and they were standing there, the rest of us would try to climb up and pull him down and we would be up there. And of course, sometimes it was difficult getting up if there was snow and sometimes it was difficult if they were defending themselves. Well, if at any time we ever played with our parents or our fathers and he was up there, our father would be very hard to dethrone because he was so much bigger than us. The idea is is that he was standing firm because he was strengthened enough to stand firm. I also think of another situation when you do learn either boxing or martial arts. One of the first things they teach you is not so much with your hands but your feet to be in a right position, a balanced position, a firm position. And I also remember hearing the joke about, you know, The fellow that was there in a cafe and guy came by and bumped him and then walked by one more time and bumped him. And so the the fella who was bumped got in his karate stance and said, I will show him and teach him a lesson. And then the guy got in his karate stance. But the point is, just talking about these stances, we're going to see where we need to take a firm stand in spiritual warfare. In fact, it's not things that we need to do like cast out demons, rebuke the devil, find out territorial spirits. That's not biblical. We're not told to do any of that. But we are told to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We are also told to put on the armor of God. Now, we're not going to talk about each piece today, but we're just going to talk about it in just an introductory way. And in that armor of God, we are to stand firm. And that is what we do. So if you think about it, really our position is one of defense, standing in the strength of the Lord for spiritual warfare. Now there also is the word, the sword of the spirit. We also would include prayer. And we'll talk about these things. But what I want to present to you in the next few weeks is a biblical view, a biblical view of spiritual warfare And I want to present to you that which the Bible teaches. And so let's turn once again to Ephesians chapter 6. And I I think I'll just, I'll read down a little farther. I'll read from verse 10 to 17, but we're only going to look at verses 10 and 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm. Said it now three times. That is really what we are to get. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we think of your word, would you now give us an understanding of it? Would you help us to understand not only the principle of it, but also the practice of it? And Father, there's a sense in which Paul has saved the most important for the end of his letter, not to be missed by us, last but not least. And Father, it's so important because we all are already engaged in spiritual warfare, whether we know it or not. 
whether we have the armor of God on or not, whether we're standing firm or not, as believers, we are involved in this battle. Oh God, help us. Give us wisdom from your word. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I would like to do, because it's been uh, some four weeks since we've talked about these things, uh, we took a break to look at our theme. Our theme this year is pressing on towards the goal of Christ, Philippians 3.14, or Christ-likeness. And I, I don't want to leave that, and we'll, we'll refer to that throughout the year, but I trust that's been a blessing to you, that series. So I'm going to begin with the review that we closed with last time, which was the review of the present-day spiritual warfare movement. Now, to say spiritual warfare is not in any sense wrong. There is spiritual warfare. But when we add the word movement to it, it comes with doctrines and beliefs that, like all doctrines and beliefs, we must check out. We must make sure it is correct. Now, I do not want to offend anyone today, but I do want to teach the Bible. And if the Bible ends up changing our viewpoint, then praise God, he's used me today. But first of all, I want to talk about the history of the spiritual warfare movement. There is a history to it. Now, it was born out of the holiness movement, the Pentecostal church. These were the ones that began to say, well, it seems like we need to do more than what the Bible says. It seems like we need to give deep definitions to what the Bible says that we ought to do. I'm a believer that Paul gave us everything we need here in this chapter, chapter 6. I do not think we have to go to a spiritual warfare school and learn things that Paul never knew. It's only true because we know it's true in the scriptures. So it was born out of the holiness and Pentecostal movement, not trying to put anyone's denomination down at all. But it grew from there. It grew through the church growth movement. Do you remember the church growth movement that was uh, se several years ago, decades ago? The idea that we're going to try to do everything we can to bring people into the church, which that in itself is not bad. But what they did was they sent a questionnaire out to everyone in the community, non-believers especially, what would you like in a church service? And then that's what we'll have at our church service. Well, what were you like before you came to Christ? What are the things that you would have added? You would have added, well, we don't want to be convicted of sin. Don't preach about sin. We don't want long sermons. And we want more entertainment. And that was the church growth movement. But it continued on with the spiritual warfare movement. It was cultivated. It was cultivated by the vineyard movement. We see that there were several individuals in the vineyard movement that were saying statements about how to have victory over Satan and demonic forces. And these were things that they claimed that God had told them and given them. It was joined by the ecumenical movement. Now, the ecumenical movement is where all denominations get together to try to be a force for God. And that sounds like a great thing, except that what do we do about doctrine? Do we set our doctrines aside just to do that? Well, if you do that, then when it comes to sharing the gospel, whose gospel do we use? Paul says there is only one. And so the ecumenical movement now, surprisingly, we would even say that some of the denominations in the ecumenical movement, if you look at their doctrinal statement, they are not even true believers. They have not placed their faith alone in Christ alone. They have not done that. They, they would say, you have to do works. And we would say, no, 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 that's not correct. And yet, the spiritual warfare movement moved among them. They could do spiritual things, they claimed. And then from there, it butted into what is the SWM, the spiritual warfare movement. It moved into that. It gave itself a name, and this is what it was. And again, most of this was, we will show you how to conduct exorcisms 
and rebuking the devil and finding out territorial strongholds and removing all that. Things that are, are unfamiliar to the scriptures. Did God forget to put that in? Or is some of this stuff made up? From there, it blossomed into the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Of course, they had to add apostolic because apostolic means authority, like the authority we see of the apostles in the New Testament in the Bible. Why is it that when they preached, why is it when they wrote, it was true because of their apostolic authority. But when those apostles died, that was the end of the apostolic authority, other than now we have it in our Bibles. But now there's a new apostolic reformation. Its major leader was the late Peter Wagner, who has now since passed away. But through his prolific writings, his speaking engagements, teaching, and organizational skills, he became one of the SWM's leading prophets and apostles, whereby he would teach these classes, teach people to become apostles, prophets, which, by the way, you didn't teach that in the Old Testament or in, the, in the, or the New Testament. It was God who chose you. Now, there may have been a prophet that may have had to be mentored, but it's God who chooses those. And we have this spiritual warfare movement. It's called the third wave. The first wave, and I don't know why the first wave wasn't the apostles in the New Testament, but the first wave was the Pentecostal movement in its teaching. The second wave was the charismatic movement. So there is a difference if you're defining its philosophy of ministry. But now we've moved into a third wave. And I wouldn't even be surprised if it's now to a fourth wave because the third wave has been here a long, long time. This is what is written by Peter Wagner. The third wave is a new moving of the Holy Spirit among evangelicals who for one reason or another have chosen not to identify with either the Pentecostals or the Charismatics, but are involved in the spiritual warfare movement and the like. Well, let's just go through this. I don't want to re-preach this, though I could, but I don't want to re-preach this. But what are some of the things that they promote Well, the first thing they promote that you'll hear them promote is binding Satan. We have to bind Satan. Beloved, we cannot bind Satan. Only God can do that. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, there was an angel who was given authority to bind Satan. It's in the future, and he will be bound for a thousand years. There's nothing now that we bind him. Uh, We don't bind him. We can't bind him. There's no such binding And yet that's what they're going to say. And they'll teach you to bind Satan. You can't rebuke the devil. We need to rebuke the devil. Well, we find out in scripture that not even Michael the archangel, the archangel rebuked Satan, but said the Lord rebuke you with the Lord's power, the Lord's authority. What's puzzling is if the archangel Michael didn't even rebuke the devil inherently from himself, How is it that we have teachers nowadays and so-called prophets that think they are? That's it. They think they are. And I imagine what a response is received by the demons and Satan. Also, too, there was the phrase pleading the blood. Now, not to be confused with what we sang, there's power in the blood and... and, uh, the, the uh, nothing but the blood, and that's fantastic. And it is about the blood of the land. But this is kind of like a formula to either heal someone or exercise a demon. You plead the blood. And all of a sudden, that's enough to make these demons go. That's exactly what they say. But when we see the blood in the Bible, it's always to deliver us from sin. And that is exactly what Christ did when he shed his blood on the cross. There's the idea of inherited curses. And this is the idea that specifically, like if you had 
someone in your family years ago that was involved in the occult, somehow or other, you are receiving the curse for that, even if you're a believer, even if you're not involved in the occult, even if you're, you're involved in going to church and all of that, you've got this curse and it's got to be broken. By the way, the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, the Bible does teach this. In Exodus 20, verse 5, it says, You shouldn't worship other gods, because God is a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I believe that that is more influential than anything. You, you see how sin nature is given at birth, but sin influence is given by parents or peers or those. And so there's that influence. But the idea is it's not an inherited curse. It's not as if it's going to go on for generations until you can say the right formula to break that. In fact, the next verse tells us what the difference is. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Anyone who comes to Christ is exempt from anything like that. And there is no curse. It was just how it was influential from one generation. That's how sin is. But it is broken. That Even that influence is broken when someone comes to Christ. Well, then we come to perhaps which is the most interesting to people, gets people's interest, and that is the territorial warfare territorial spirits. This is where you're trained to go into cities and you drive around the city until you get an impression that this this particular spot and location is evil and demons are residing there. You're taught how to do this. And then you're taught to remove them. And this can even be in churches. They would even go into churches and they would say, well, back in that corner right there, that's where these demons are. And so they're teaching these things and how to get rid of them. Well, the truth of the matter is we know that demons can go anywhere. Um, We even know from the book of Daniel that there may be demons that are over certain areas, certain countries, that that's where they are. But it's not like it's a territorial, I've got to seek them out and I've got to dispense them. By the way, when we see that in the book of Daniel, Daniel was like, what? And by the way, Daniel didn't rebuke them out. Daniel didn't do anything. He just listened to the angelic messenger who was involved in spiritual warfare. We don't do any of that. That is a spiritual battle. And that is what the Bible does talk about. It talks about this spiritual battle battle that's going on we believe the battle we just don't believe these contemporary unbiblical ideas well what ideas do we believe that's what i want to teach as i go through this and first of all we find out that we're wrestling demonic forces satanic forces we are wrestling them we're not wrestling flesh and blood though flesh and blood may be influenced by those forces but we are wrestling them we're wrestling those things which are even in out of this realm so how do we wrestle with it well he's going to teach us by being a believer by standing firm by putting on the armor of god we'll work our way through that again standing firm three times he's going to say that in these short passages that's what we do so we're not out aggressively looking for territorial possessions and casting them out, rebuking them, binding them. We're standing firm. And we are told to put on the armor of God, which we will talk about this morning by way of introduction. What is the armor of God? It is a figure of speech to picture the believer's character and actions while standing firm against Satan and his demons. It is not a literal armor that we put on, but it is the character, specific character that we are to put on. We'll go through this. We will. But this morning, I want to take a look at several things. I want to look at the believer's strength 
in the Lord? Where does the strength come from? Do you and I have the strength? Or does the Lord have the strength? And has he enabled us to be strong in him? That's in verse 10. And then we'll talk about the armor of God. What is the armor of God in more detail? And, and uh, we're not going to talk about the pieces to, today in full, but we'll talk about it. And we'll even talk about how to put it on at this point. And we'll move on. We probably will not get to the schemes of the devil. That's probably what we really want to know. What are the schemes and the stratagems of the devil? We'll talk about that next week as we talk about schemes of the devil and our struggle against the rulers and against the powers. So to begin with, turn in your Bibles then to, if you're there, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And let's go through this. Paul begins with the word finally. One of the reasons that the word finally is there, I'm sure, is because this is, you know, the end of his epistle. And he has taught us some tremendous truths, deep truths. He's taught us about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ the moment that we trust Christ as Lord and Savior. You remember it. If not, I'll remind you. Ephesians 1, 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And chapters 1 through 3, we went through those spiritual blessings, and there's more. When we get to chapter 4 through 6, now now that we have these things in Christ, how do we put them into practice? And then he comes to the final point, finally. And I believe, in a sense, it's one of the most important, one of the most serious. Because up until this time, one would say that I'm just wrestling with my own flesh, with my old nature, even though I've been told to put on my new nature. That's one of the spiritual blessings that we have. But now this has gotten a little more seriously. Finally, and we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Now, before we go on, I want to make one point. And that is, if you've studied the book of Ephesians, you know that it is one of the more detailed epistles. It talks about deep things, deep doctrine, deep truths. And you get the idea that this is a mature church. They're, They're gone on from milk to food. So if there was ever a church that was mature and needed to hear the next level of spiritual warfare, such as casting out demons, rebuking the devil, if there was ever a church that needed to be instructed in that because they're certainly mature enough, it would have been them. It would have been them. But he doesn't mention any of this. You really get the idea that poor Paul, I don't know how he did it with such limited resources to cast out demons and to to instruct how to have victory in spiritual warfare. I mean, he didn't attend any of these new seminars. But we know, we know that this is God's word. We know that this is God's truth. We know that God the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this because this is what we need for life and godliness. This is what we need to be victorious in spiritual warfare. And so he says, finally, finally. And then he begins with an imperative. It's a command in the Greek. And this is going to be the first of a series of imperatives. There's at least five imperatives in just these next few verses when we get all the way to verse 17. And when we come to this imperative to be strong, it's literally, you must keep on being strong in the Lord. You must keep doing this. This isn't something that you're going to let go of and one day you're strong and the next day you're taking a day off. You may take a day off, but the spiritual demonic forces never take a day off. And so this is something that we have to constantly do. Uh, Along with all of the other applications that he gave us, we have to do this. We have to be strong in the Lord and in the strength 
of his might. And it's in a present tense where it's keep on being strengthened. Keep on being strengthened. Now, the word for strong here or strengthened is en dunamao. It has the word that we get dynamite from, dunamis. But then there is an emphatic preposition. So it's almost that it's, it's, it's super dynamic power. It's the power that God gives us to empower us to fulfill what he asks us to do. So this is how he wants us to be strong in this power. But the question would be, well, how, how do I do that? How do I become strengthened? Well, I'd like to talk about a few things right now. I'd like to talk about how one goes about that. The first one is, is that we need to be strengthened by the believer's position in Christ. And you may be saying, oh, that again? Well, absolutely. It's the same letter. And it's very interesting. The point here is be strong in the Lord. It's not be strong in your own strength. It's be strong in the Lord's strength. It must come from him, and you must recognize that it comes from him. And it's not that the believer is able to draw upon his own strength. The believer must draw upon the Lord's strength. And we move on for, from some of these, and, and we see here it says, and in the strength of his might. Three words are used here for strength. Three different words are used for strength here. Uh, Paul is really teaching us that we, we have dynamic empowerment through God's authoritative power, and it comes from his inherent power. And this is what we are to avail ourselves. Now, how do we avail ourselves of it? Well, first of all, we have to understand our position in Christ. Now, I know this could be a little detailed if, you're the first, if it's the first time you're here, but we've spent a lot of time talking about that. Just for starters, if you go to the book of Ephesians, you'll see the phrase, in Christ, in Christ, some 29 times. Sometimes it'll be in him, sometimes it'll be something else, but 29 times it's in Christ. And this is how you picture it. If you picture a circle, the circle is Christ. In the center of that circle is a dot, and it's the Greek word en, which means in. You are in Christ, and all that is Christ is given to you. All these positional truths we have. So we find things in the book of Ephesians that talk about the believer's position in Christ, such as he is forgiven. It talks about our forgiveness in Christ. We have been adopted made sons of God in Christ. We have been redeemed. He has redeemed us in Christ. We even have an inheritance where we share in the glory of Christ in Christ. And these are all the things that we have. But now at the very end, he's saying something else. Let me tell you else about your position in Christ that you can avail yourselves of strength. Strengthen the Lord. You, can, you are empowered in the Lord, not in yourself, but availing yourself upon these things because you are in Christ in spiritual warfare. That is good news. You know, you, you read some of these uh, books or you talk to some of these people or you watch some of these videos and it's, it's like they're always coming up with something new. It's, it's, they never have something established. It's always that, well, we better come up with the new terminology because it's getting old. It's not new. It's not novel. Well, it's not biblical either. And so the idea is, is that they're, they're always trying to come up with that. But in our position in Christ, this is what it's about. I don't know about those best-selling books. Sadly, sadly, they're best-selling books on Christian bookstands. But I do know about the power of Christ in Christ because he's the Lord of Lords. That's who we sang about this morning. So our position in Christ, we got to go back to that. We got to think about that. It's not because he's, he saved us and now he's sending us. It's because he saved us, he sanctified us, and he placed us in Christ. That's what Ephesians is saying. And there it is. Be strong in the Lord, meaning it's his strength, but it's in the Lord. It's in Christ. If you're not a believer you probably don't have spiritual warfare. 
The Bible teaches that if you don't know Christ and you're not a believer, you are in the enemy's camp. He's got you. It's only after you come to Christ do you have victory based on Christ's victory over the devil. That's what we have. But we also know that if we don't know Christ, and the truth of the matter is if we don't know Christ and we die in this, this life, we go on to the next, we're not going to heaven. We're not, I, wish, I wish it was universal, but it's not. We're not going to heaven. We are going to eternal punishment, and that is called hell. And that's what the Bible says. That's not what, that's not what uh, culture says. We don't say those things. Those are pejorative terms, but that is the truth. And so I would say if you're going to talk about a first step here, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning? Have you trusted him? Have you realized that you are a sinner separated from God? You come to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me and my sins. The moment that you place your faith in Christ in that way, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are adopted. You are in Christ. And you have all of these things that we're going to talk about. So, first of all, we are strengthened by the believer's position in Christ. Secondly, we're strengthened by the believer's armor of God. I'm not going to say a whole lot at this moment, as we'll pick it up in verse 11. And then we're not going to say everything about it in verse 11 because we're going to eventually get to it later on in this passage and we're going to go through piece by piece. But Paul will talk about putting on the armor of God as a means to stand firm against Satan's forces. That's the victory in spiritual warfare. We do have strength and we're strengthened by knowing of Christ's victory over Satan. There's a sense in which we're not asked to, to defeat Satan because Satan has already been defeated by Christ. We just appropriate what he has done. We appropriate that we're in Christ and we appropriate the practice that he tells us to do. I just want to say a few things about spiritual warfare. And I am not saying that there is no such thing as spiritual warfare. I'm certainly not saying that there's no such thing as the devil or Satan. And we'll talk about him specifically next week. Neither do I want to say that we aren't even engaged in spiritual warfare. We are. Spiritual warfare exists, but Christ destroyed the works of the devil through his work on the cross. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, it's a little, little applicable here, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, he certainly has defeated Satan, and yet Satan is alive and well. That's part of God's plan, allowing this to come to fruition but the victory is there he has he has overcome the devil and there was a sense in which the devil had leverage over mankind they're sinners you got to send them to hell but that has been removed christ stands up as our lawyer our advocate in first john and says yes they are sinners but I died on the cross for them. I took their penalty. I took their sin and their penalty for them. And so he has destroyed the works of the devil and it's just a matter of time before it all comes crashing down on him. Secondly, spiritual warfare exists, but the believer is no longer under the domain of Satan. I was mentioning that a little earlier. If you're an unbeliever, you're still under the domain of Satan. But here's one of my favorite verses Colossians 1.3, if you want to turn there, you can, or I'll just read it. Here's one of the positional truths that happened to you as a believer, whether you know it or not. I just said, you know, if you trust Christ as your Savior, you'll be forgiven of sin, you'll have eternal life, and mentioned a few other things. I didn't mention this one. For he rescued us, Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, where's that? Who's that? That's Satan. We were under his domain. 
For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. That's where we are as believers. So you see, we have to learn to stand in this, in this position. And stand is exactly what we have to do. Spiritual warfare exists, but the believer only engages in it in the sense that he puts on the armor of God to stand firm and resist the devil. He says that three times in these short verses. He uses the idea of resist the devil. James said, submit therefore to God, number one, then resist the devil, number two, and he will flee from you, number three. Even James doesn't say, well, you've got to, You've got to tree the devil. You've got to tree him like a coon hound that's going after raccoons. And you tree him and you got him. And then you dispense of him. My word. I'm all for rednecks, just not redneck theology. That's all. <laughs> and I've always said, we, if, if, if you can howl at the devil, if that was such a thing, I think there's enough people in this church that would be excellent howlers. That's all I'm saying. I'm not going any farther with that. All right. Okay, fourthly, spiritual warfare exists, but as the divine creator, Christ, who we see that he also created along with the Father, along with the Holy Spirit, he is more powerful He's the creator. Satan and all the demons are angelic beings, which means they were created. They aren't God. You know the old philosophy of yin and yang? That's the philosophy that, you know, evil and good are equal and they're battling. No. God is God. He's the creator. Man plus the angels, including the fallen angels, were created. He brought them into the world, and he can take them out, and he will. And so Christ is more powerful, and we could talk about that. In fact, it even says in Colossians 1 that he created the angelic world. Of course, they fell on their own. He didn't create demons. They fell, and they left heaven, and that's when they became fallen angels. It says, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's the creator, beloved. And then we read also in 1 John, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we would usually identify the he as the Holy Spirit, but we also know that Christ indwells the believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so this would certainly apply to him. And then finally, we're strengthened by Christ's victory over Satan, destroyed the works of the devil, took us out of the domain, enables us to stand firm, is the creator and more powerful, and then spiritual warfare exists, but Christ prayed for the believer's victory over the evil one. He prayed for that, and not just for Peter. In his high priestly prayer, which is, I've been referring to that numerous times. We probably need to make a beeline to that one of these days pretty quick and look at that. He says, and he's praying to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. And we might have wished that he might have prayed, take them out of the world as soon as they come to Christ. We wouldn't have to go through all of this. But he, he says, no, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one based on the work of Christ, based on the indwelling Holy Spirit based on the new nature that we've been given and based on the position that we are in Christ, keep them from the evil one. And so you see, it's not as if we're trying to defeat Satan. He's defeated. But in this skirmish, as he's trying to get back at God, he's going to attack believers. And then finally, we would say, We are strengthened by the word of God in prayer. So all of these things we're strengthened by. Now, how is it that the word of God strengthens us? Well, you know that. 
But here in Ephesians, he's going to say that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And all of the pieces that we're to have with the armor of God, one of them is a sword. It's the sword of the spirit. What does it do? Well, we'll talk in detail, but I will say this much. It describes and explains the characteristics of the armor. You know, when he tells us to put on, to gird the loins of truth, he's thinking of truth. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. He's thinking about righteousness. When he's thinking about the gospel of peace, that's exactly what he's thinking of. When he says the shield of faith, he's thinking of faith. We've got to have faith and stand in faith. And then he also mentions the helmet of salvation, and that's really where it begins for us and it begins for anyone else. So it is the word of God. And then the word of God tells us and defines for us who God is, what we should believe, and how we should live. And then certainly also prayer. We are strengthened by prayer in spiritual warfare. I'm just kind of giving us an introductory of this. Well, as we get to the verses, we'll go in detail of it. But prayer is the believer's offensive weapon to pray for not only our own victory, but also for all saints to be on the alert. Are they struggling? Does it look like there's spiritual warfare going on? And you know, that can be explained. Uh, There are times that there's no other way to explain. You're not going to believe what has happened to me. You're not going to believe the things that happened to me in my life this past week. And there's a sense in which you only can explain it is to say it's been spiritual warfare. It's so far out there, no explanation other than it's spiritual warfare. So we're praying for our own victory, and we're praying for the victory of all saints. So let me just rehearse it again before we go to the armor of God. What are those things that we are strengthened? And we're told to be strong. It's a command, by the way. We're not only to keep on doing it continuously, but he's commanding us. So it's not like today where, look, I don't want to offend anyone. So if you, if you find yourself not having anything to do, and you don't mind, and you don't mind. I mean, if it doesn't agree with you, fine. And you don't mind. But if you would, could you try to be a little stronger in the Lord? No, no, that's fine. I'll come back and talk to you again. That's not the way our God speaks to us in his authority. Now, it is with love, but it is this. Finally, you must keep on being strong in the Lord. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is a command to us. And when you look at the context for good reason, and so we are strengthened by our position in Christ, we are strengthened by the armor we're to put on, We are strengthened by Christ's victory over Satan, and we are strengthened by the word and prayer. This is how we are to be strong, and we're to move on. We're not not done yet. We're we're certainly not finished with this. By the way, I do want to read one specific verse. I've got to refer to Ephesians, right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. We're talking about the believer's blessings that he received in Christ. And here's one of them. Ephesians 1, 19. In fact, let's go back to verse 18 because this is a part of a prayer of Paul's. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. In Christ, we have his power. God has with surpassing greatness given power towards us, dunamis, dynamite in the English, dynamic power. These are in accordance not with some book, some mythology book. These are in accordance with God's own inherent strength, working it out in your life. And this is what we are to be strengthened by. 
the same words, three of the same words are used in this same passage, chapter 6, verse 10. But let's move on. What about the armor? Let's talk about the believer's armor of God. We've talked about the review of the spiritual warfare movement. We've talked about the believer's strength in the Lord. Let's now talk about the believer's armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11. Let's read verse 11. It says, put on the full armor of God. And by the way, that is a command in the Greek. You must put on the full armor of God. Or actually, I've translated that. You must clothe yourself. That's what the word means. You must clothe yourselves. And I might add this, once and for all. I'll explain. That's all in the Greek in this. Put on the full armor of God for a purpose. What's the purpose? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm, but you have to put on the armor of God. Let's talk about the armor of God for a moment. What is it? What, and we see it and we know it, but let's define it. Well, first of all, the word for armor or rather full armor is the Greek word panoplia. And it has the word all and it has the word of the various pieces of the armor. Put on all the pieces. Don't only put on some. Don't just be blocked on one side, but be blocked on all sides. Uh, we'll talk about these pieces, and they're very interesting, but it means put on the full armor of God. If you're looking at the NASB, it uses the word full. Some versions have used the word complete. That's good. Pan means all. Now, when it's speaking about Roman soldiers, it's literal. It means the full preparation of a foot soldier for offense and defense with the complete suit of armor. So it is literal. But when he applies it to the Christian life, he gives it these characteristics of truth, of righteousness, salvation. Metaphorically, it refers to these characteristics that a believer is to have and stand in. You put them on, you keep them on, you don't take them off, and you stand in them forever until the Lord comes for you. One writes, The whole armor of God proves effective against the ploys of Satan. So it's these characteristics. It is not optional, but required. So it's not as if some people can go to war and some people have to stay home. That's not in the spiritual realm. We all are engaged in it, like it or not. So it's not optional. It's required. This author goes on to say, it's not partial, but complete. He's not just giving part of it to us. He's giving all of us, and we have the responsibility for putting it all on. It's not negotiable, but commanded. With it, the believer will be strong and will be enabled to stand firm. That's what the armor of God is. It's these characteristics. Here's another definition. Incorporating all that we've been talking about, the armor of God represents several things. Number one, Christ's victory over Satan. So when we think of the armor of God, the very reason that we're able to put it on in the first place is because of Christ's victory over Satan. The armor of God also represents the believer's position in Christ, as we just talked about, as it pertains to spiritual warfare. But thirdly, by now, it represents the empowerment of the believer clothed continually in spiritual characteristics, which we are able to stand against Satan. So this is really how God is telling us how we are effective in spiritual warfare. Now, Paul also referred to other metaphors. This is by far one of the, well, I want to say best, but all the word of God is good. So one of the more interesting for sure. In Romans 13, he talked about armor, but he talked about armor as the armor of light. 
It's really the same thing. And what would be the armor of light? It would be those characteristics of light. It would be the characteristics of what we are to put on, how we are to live, how we are to stand firm. It says the night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put it on. It's the same thing. Same words, armor. And... 2 Corinthians, he talks about using weapons, but weapons of righteousness, weapons of character. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left hand. He talks about these weapons, but it's not as if we're talking about something else. It's all in the same realm. It's all part of the idea of warfare. And here's one that we're familiar with. The weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So we're not talking about what we can muster, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And what kind of fortresses? Well, we could talk about them as uh, the idea of beliefs in the world, and those beliefs sometimes come into the church. And fortresses, and even thinking of people's sin in which they are... uh, held to because they're in the camp of the enemy but our weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of these fortresses we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of god and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of christ so these weapons and this armor it's it's synonymous to what we are seeing here in the armor of god and finally Where did Paul get the idea? Well, most every commentary said something like this. Paul was probably chained to a Roman soldier, and we know he was. This is an epistle that's called a prison epistle. Paul was probably chained to a Roman soldier when he penned the words of Ephesians. And looking at the soldier's armor, He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to see in it the analogy of God's spiritual provision for our battle with Satan and his angels. One of the things that's so interesting is when in Philippians he writes about his imprisonment and he tells the Philippians, don't worry so much about my imprisonment. He says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. He's saying that because I'm a prisoner and because I'm chained to these guys, these guys have to be chained to me. They all know the gospel. Now, they may not have all come to Christ, but they all know the gospel. So they were chained to him. And as Paul is looking at them and he's looking at their hardware, he's looking at their armor, he's seeing these things. You know, what kind of armor would we need to stand against our battle? What battle? The battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness, against Satan. And so this is where he writes about the armor of God. Well, moving on, notice he says in verse 6, he tells us to put it on. It's the Greek word in duo, and many times means to clothe oneself. Put your clothes on, clothe yourself. And it's very interesting, he's already used this word. He's used it for when, you remember in Ephesians 4, we talked about you have to put on the new self. Now, the new self is there, but you have to appropriate it. You have to put it into practice. That's Ephesians 4.24. He also talked about putting on Christ-like character, putting to clothe yourself with character, he tells us in Colossians 3. And those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Put it on. You're clothing yourself with it. You're appropriating. You're applying it. You're going out not unclothed, but clothed in Christian character and the armor of God. And then finally, in Romans 13, this is what he says. And put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ, which is one of our spiritual blessings. That's the ultimate. But here, he's saying, clothe yourself with the armor of God. 
This is what you are to do. This is your responsibility in the spiritual battle. And what might be happening is you have individuals who are following these individuals who are teaching these false things, and they're doing that in all of their energy, but they're not at all going to the Bible and putting these things on as they are told to do so that they can stand. And many times they don't stand. And again... As I said, this is an imperative. This is a command. He is not exempting you from this. Uh, No one who's a believer is not in the battle. But what's interesting here is, and I'll make this point, and we're winding down as we're running out of time. This is in the aorist tense. Now, if you're not sure what I mean by all these, then you have to come to our very, very fun introduction to Greek class during Sunday school. Everybody who raises their hand has a smile on their face. (laughs) An aorist action here is a point in time. It's a once for all. He's saying, put it on and don't ever take it off. Sometimes we hear expositors say, every day, wake up, the first thing I do is put on the armor of God. I get it, except it's not exactly right. You know, there are instances where you never take off your armor. You even in real battle where you're always prepared. Well, that's such because we may go to sleep, but the enemy never sleeps. And so put it on and keep it on because that's how you could stand moment by moment. This is what he says. You must clothe yourself once for all with the complete panoply of God, the armor of God. And then he says, when you've done that, then you will be able to stand. Don't go out there and stand without the armor of God. Don't go out there and stand, try to stand firm if you haven't put it on. But once you put it on, don't take it off, and then you will be able to stand. And I just want to mention a few things about stand, and we've run out of time, but I say next week we'll pick it up because we're supposed to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's what we'll talk about. We'll talk about the devil as well. Stand firm. So there's always a literal meaning, right? So it literally means to stand in a standing position. And it even includes standing in a firm position, you know, standing in a way or play that game. So somebody's standing and somebody comes by, tries to push you a little bit to get you off your, your stance, your balance. Well, that, that's the literal meaning. Metaphorically, it means be established in your position with your armor of God in the battle against Satan. That's what it means metaphorically. Established in one's position and you stand one's ground. You don't move and you don't back away, but you stand there. One writes this. The decisive victory has already been won by God in Christ. And the task of believers is not to win, but to stand. That is, to preserve and maintain what has been won. It is because this victory has been won that the believers are involved in the battle at all. Meaning, A, you wouldn't be a believer, you'd be in the enemy's camp. B, you are a believer, and now Satan has a target on your back and you're involved in this battle. But one thing this does tell us, if if you're standing, it means that you've been taken out of his camp and put in the Lord's camp. It says they are in a decisively new situation in contrast to their previous condition described in Ephesians 2. Remember Ephesians 2? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we are before we come into Christ. It says where there could be no battle or resistance because they were in total bondage to the enemy. So the call to the readers to stand against the powers is also a reminder of their liberation from the tyranny of these powers. I am not under Satan's control any longer. I am in Christ. 
I have been placed into the kingdom of his son. And now I am in Christ and I have been empowered to put on these characteristics and then to stand against it. Is it easy? No. Will it feel like we're in battle at times? Absolutely. But this is what we are to do. But the key is we do have to appropriate it. Believers must appropriate what has already been gained for them and do so against continuing assaults. And this is not automatic. The writer's focus is to make the assured outcome of the overall battle their own by standing and maintaining the ground that has been won. And that's what we do. And that, in a nutshell, is what the believer's responsibility is in spiritual warfare. May the Lord give us grace as we go forward to live for him and are inevitably in the spiritual warfare battle. We'll talk more about it and go through these verses, but let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. Father, I don't think we'll ever go wrong if we decide to embrace your word rather than even what comes out of sometimes Christendom as new methods and strategies. No, Father, you are the one who created us. You know that we are struggle, we struggle with the sinful nature, though we have a new nature. We know that even though we are yours, we will battle, Satan will battle against us, battle for us, but he cannot have us. And Father, we thank you for the wisdom. And it makes sense, Lord, that we don't really have to go to a seminar to learn all of these techniques that aren't even talked about in the Bible, but we simply have to rest in the power of Christ as we have been placed in Christ at the moment of salvation. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, I pray that they will trust him as their savior today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.